Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Yerimeva, and welcome to the New Books Network. In the past decade or so, adventurous travelers have flocked to the the tiny island nation of Iceland to enjoy its many wonders. Stunning nature and wildlife, innovative and unique cuisine, a compelling history that includes Vikings, and the rich literary tradition rooted in the Icelandic sagas. Once in Iceland, travelers may also note that Iceland has one of the happiest populations with one of the highest rates of acceptance for the LGBTQIA individual community. And with no military, Iceland is also one of the more peaceful nations on the planet. It's also a great place to be a woman in 2022. And just how and why that is, and whether Iceland's proximity to gender parity can serve as a model for other nations, is explored in a marvelous new book by the country's current first lady, Canadian-born Eliza Reid. The book is Secrets of the Sprakar, Iceland's Extraordinary Women and How They Are Changing the World, explores how Iceland's unique history, people, politics, and of course, its fantastic nature, have enabled women to pursue the equality that they know to be their right. In its pages, we meet a number of extraordinary, sprockier, powerful women, pioneering politicians, medieval heroines, stand-up comedians, fishermen, search and rescue team leaders, and immigrants to Iceland like Reed herself. I'm so looking forward to getting stuck into all aspects of Secrets of the Sprocker, and it is such a pleasure to welcome Eliza Reed to the New Books Network. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you for inviting me. Hello. Hello. Um, I just want to make sure at the beginning that I got the pronunciation of sprocker right, because I think we'll be repeating it throughout the interview. You and, did. and can you tell us what is a sprocker? A sprocky. Yes. yes, exactly. Singular okay. is sprocky, plural is sprocker, and it's an old and, and quite obscure Icelandic word that means outstanding women. And I thought, what better word to use in a book about outstanding women than sprocker? Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, we're, I think it will soon come into the um, very mainstream modern usage um, after after everyone enjoys the book. You call this book your love letter to Iceland, and I love the way you wove your own story into the examination of, of Iceland's situation with women. Will you share with us how you came to live in Iceland? I'm sure that's the first question everybody asks you, like, how did you get to Iceland? Well, it's not the first question, but I think it's also, it's in some ways a very ordinary story and in some ways an extraordinary story, I suppose, like so many things. Um, I grew up in a small town or on a hobby farm just outside of Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And I hardly knew that Iceland existed as a country when I was growing up. Then I studied at the University of Toronto. And like so many people, when they finish a degree, decided to postpone making other decisions about my life. And so I moved to the UK to go to graduate school at Oxford University. And at Oxford, Canadians were a dime a dozen. 
But there was one person from Iceland, and he was in fact the only Icelander studying at that particular Oxford college at that time. And so he was very exotic just to begin with, because most of us had never met someone from Iceland before. And he is uh, Gudni Johannesson, who is now my husband, almost 25 years later. And we met and fell in love. And in 2003, after several years of living in the UK, we moved to Iceland together to build a life here in this country. And we managed to do that. We, We bought a little house and I started working doing freelance writing. And we had four children together in just under six years. And my husband has a grown daughter from his first marriage. And we really built a a nice, cozy little life for ourselves. And then if we fast forward to 2016, there was a presidential election here in Iceland. (laughs) And Iceland has both a president and a prime minister. Um, Mm -hmm. The prime minister at the time was implicated in the Panama Papers scandal that broke at the time. And my husband was the pundit who was called onto television to comment on this ongoing situation. And somehow the stars aligned. He, his demeanor on television struck a chord and people literally started calling our house and encouraging him to run for president, which was this ongoing election. And he did, and and he won. And that happened uh, in a period of less than three months, I think. So it it was a huge shock to the system. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's just um, rewind a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, because four children is a lot um, and in that many years. And you you bring this up in the book, and you're very open and honest about um, your appreciation for the country's policies around family. Can you tell us a little bit about those and how they encouraged you to have such a large family? Mm -hmm. I've, I mean, I've said before in interviews that I probably wouldn't have had as many children in Canada simply because it wouldn't have been very feasible for me. And Mm -hmm. somehow it just seemed easier here in Iceland. And, and part of that reason, one big reason is also a family friendly society, but another are the the policies that support and, and encourage families, notably uh, parental leave, which is paid for by the state and is what is called a use it or lose it system, which mm. means that one parent gets several months of leave, the second parent gets several months of leave, and then there's a third chunk that people can share between them. The idea being that, first of all, employers aren't on the hook themselves to cover the additional costs of when somebody takes parental leave. And secondly, that obviously, you know, it was traditionally mothers who tended to take most of leave in this system encourages fathers as well to to take parental leave from when the baby is very young. And then after the parental leave policy ends, there's a heavily subsidized uh, preschool education system or play school, as it's called here, that has additional subsidies if you have siblings or if you're a single parent or student or something like that. And so so it's really... It, it just helps make parenting slightly more affordable. And then the, the family-friendly society overall also makes it, for instance, acceptable to take your child to work with you if, they, if there's a day off of school or you don't have to book a day's holiday if you want to go to your child's ballet recital that happens to be in the middle of the day or something like that. And, and all of that really just helps to make things a little bit easier for parents. I think parents, we all have enough to deal with as it is. I remember... Um visiting you at one point in Reykjavik and we uh, drove to your mother-in-law's house to pick up one of your children who had spent the the morning there. Um, (laughs) And that, which was a very lovely, lovely visit. She gave us some fantastic cookies. I remember. Um, But you, this idea of the, the, what Hillary Clinton calls the village crops up again and again, the, the sort of the networks of family and friends and networks of women themselves 
um, throughout the book. And mm-hmm. is this a big part of, of life? In Iceland? I think so. As you said, family in the sense that traditionally people have had a lot of children in Iceland. I mean, I wouldn't say that most people have four children, but it's not uh, eyebrow-raisingly unusual either. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and children are welcome in most settings. So it's family-friendly in that sense. And then exactly, I also profile this idea of the importance of female friendships and, and the, mm-hmm. the effect that that has on gender equality. And the two examples that I use in the book um, hopefully are quite different. One is of a group of older women. The oldest was 87 years old, uh, who were volunteers for decades in these women's associations, these these groups that are almost kind of like the the, the church women's associations that you might see in other countries, although they're not affiliated with a religion. And they're women who meet and they bake together, they do classes together, they, for instance, might do the catering for the reception after a funeral or for other events. Mm. They fundraise to give money to hospitals and other worthy causes. They fundraise to actually be able to send other uh, women who are working from the home on a vacation, sort of a homemaker's vacation for a week, which I think is something that a lot of people who work just from home could <laughs> That's be That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and they're really this sort of vital glue within the community. Although, and I think very important, you know, in, in both in terms of the, the, uh, the mental health benefits of these close friendships and what they've learned from each other. And then obviously the in- tremendous impact that they've had on, on fundraising and, and and time given to the communities. And then the other group that I profile are a group of women in their late 40s and early 50s who a few years ago trained extensively to swim across the English Channel to raise money for charity. Uh, which is the jellyfish, right? The jellyfish, exactly. The jellyfish. It's a, it's <laughs> they a, sound very fierce. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I went sea swimming with them. They go swimming here in the sea in Reykjavik, which is the world's most northerly capital, capital city, every week. And I, I say I go sweet swimming with it, but I ran into the freezing cold North Atlantic and I ducked down to my neck and then I ran out. <laughs> um, let's just get that clear. I would, I would not okay. be swimming across the channel. Um, but they, they did this and they had to do extensive training. And really, I think that that shows that it, both the, the examples of, of putting these strong physical challenges for themselves and also for carving out time and space for themselves, which is really important. And they talked about saying that when they would tell people they were doing this, people would say, well, what does your husband think about that? Or what about the children? And and they were trying to say, well, this no, this is good for children. This is showing that it's also important for us to carve out time for ourselves and and to try to be tough and do these sort of kick-ass things, if I'm allowed to use that phrase. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Please do you, because that's what it is. There, I mean, mm-hmm. these are intense physical challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also um, give a wonderful example uh, in the book of a uh, mother who kind of showed the whole nation how to parent um, with, uh, I hope I get her name right, because she's an mm-hmm. impressive woman, um, Una Bra, Kondrat's mm-hmm. daughter, the, the parliamentarian. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you share with our listeners wh- how she kind of achieved her 15 minutes of fame? Absolutely. So she was a member of parliament. She had just returned to work after having her third child. And just the way the parliament was sitting, she had actually returned to work a little bit earlier than she had planned to because of the way they parliamentary schedule was. So she would often bring her few month old daughter with her to parliamentary committee meetings and sessions and when parliament was sitting. 
And one day she was sitting in parliament nursing her baby and she was called upon to deliver a speech with a bill that she had been proposing to parliament. And so she was really the only person qualified to be able to address the, the, the question that had been asked of her. And she was in the middle of nursing her baby. And as she said herself, she had either the choice to sort of rip the baby from her chest and hand her screaming to her colleague or to just carry her up and continue to nurse her while she delivered this point uh, uh, on on this bill in Parliament. And of course, that's what she decided to do. And then she sat down and uh, she sort of said all hell broke loose that she started getting all kinds of text messages that about how she had been been breastfeeding in Parliament. But for her, she said it was just the most normal thing. She said, you know, of course, you're going to feed your child if it's hungry, whether that's nursing it or giving it a sandwich. Uh, and, and she was a little bit bemused by all of the attention, but I think sort of pleased about the fact that that, that, that shows what kind of a society we're living in here in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you encountered a similar situation when you first started to work as a, as a newcomer to Iceland, which in the book you say it surprised you. Yeah, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's strange. It's one of the, the sort of scenes and images that I remember very well from my first years in Iceland, even though I was in my 20s when I moved to the country and sort of having children right away for me wasn't on my radar at all. But I worked for a small software company, which was very male dominated. There was only a handful of women who worked there. uh, One of whom though was the chair of the board of the company. And one day I was walking by the conference room as they were having a meeting and the chair of the board had also just returned from maternity leave and she was nursing her baby while she was chairing the meeting. And I can only imagine, as I recall, that it was a majority of men who were on the board and none of them batted an eye or made a joke or were sort of looking awkwardly away as if this was something to be embarrassed about. They were all just conducting the meeting and and there was nothing to be said about it. And, and it just st- stuck in my mind as a remarkable moment uh, just for the fact that, it, you know, it is so natural and normal. And yet in so many places, people make such a big deal out of it that I was very happy to be living in a country where that was just an absolutely unremarkable event. And and do, did that initial experience um, give you the confidence to start your own business? Because in addition to being First Lady of Iceland, you want you run the amazing Iceland Writers Retreat, which um, I hope our listeners uh, will link to it in the show notes. Um, anybody who is contemplating a creative project, this is a great place to incubate it. Um, talk to us a little bit about starting your own business. Thank you. Yeah, we. I mean, I was doing some independent projects, but the Iceland Rise Retreat was a project that my friend Erica Jacobs Green and I started. And you know, if we're linking it to gender equality, one of the things I remember was that the day that we had our first meeting with a potential sponsor was the same day that I found out I was pregnant with my fourth child. And I remember sitting in the meeting, and it, you know, that obviously means it was so early that I hadn't really told anyone. And I was doing all these mental calculations in my mind thinking, okay, if this works out, then the baby will be about seven months old when this event takes place. And that's fine because I'll have finished my maternity leave and my husband will be taking his paternity leave. And and it, and, and it did work out fine. Um, and, and throughout that pregnancy, actually, because we were just starting this project, I, I, I took, I, I went to all kinds of meetings as I was pregnant. And then I just started taking the baby in her in the car seat or or in her stroller to all of my other various meetings as it was being organized amazing well and it all worked out it all worked worked out out. very well um 
Take us back to the 1970s, if you will, which you cover in the book, this incredible moment when Iceland's uh, women decide to take a day off, um, you know, a, a nationwide day off. And and this is something that's still commemorated in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And what effect has it had on this notion of gender parity? Yeah, it's a very sort of important moment in the history of equal rights in Iceland, I guess you could say. In 1975, the women of Iceland, as you say, decided to take a day off. They didn't want to call it a strike because they thought that was sort of aggressive sounding, but it was called a day off and it was meant to highlight the uh, disparity, wage inequality and other inequalities between men and women and really to to showcase quite clearly the invaluable work that women were doing in society. And 90% of the women that day took the day off. Many of them went into Reykjavik where there was a big demonstration event held uh, and predictably the country shut down. So the banks closed because all the tellers were women and the schools and the preschools closed because so many of the teachers were women and the male newsreaders on the radio, you could hear children playing in the background because they'd brought their children with them to work and the flights were canceled because there was female flight attendants and some of the newspapers the next day were delayed in printing because the the people who were setting the the typeset were often women. And, you know, society just shut down. And that really galvanized support for increasing gender equality within the country. And, And I, you know, I should add that there were a great many men who were also very supportive of this. It mm-hmm. wasn't a sort of antagonistic event. Um, and within five years, Iceland had elected the world's first democratically elected female head of state. So an entire generation then of people grew up with a female president because she was president for 16 years. And I think if it weren't for the Women's Day Off, people might not have felt that the country was ready for a female head of state yet. But but mm-hmm. it all kind of one thing led to another. And you mentioned that we still commemorate that. And that's true. Every few years, uh, women stop working at the time of day that it is when when they have sort of earned as much as, as the men would have earned the whole day. Ah. So, so women stop, you know, at 225 one day, and then we hope the wage gap has improved. And so they might stop at 228 two years later. Mm. But you are at um, equal pay for equal work at this point. We There is still a wage gap, but there oh, okay. is a law that larger companies have to prove that they are paying um, equal pay for equal work. So the onus is now on the companies to provide the right documentation, but it's only uh-huh. companies of a certain size. So the the wage gap still persists, although it's you know getting smaller and smaller. So there's still work to do. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, let's turn now to the um, the notion of the LGBTQIA. One of the first things you notice if you stroll around downtown Reykjavik is that wonderful Rainbow Road mm-hmm. uh, along one of the main boulevards. Um, how has this issue evolved uh, for the people of Iceland? I think this is a really interesting example of how society has pushed legislative change. You know, we were talking earlier about legislation for parents and, and how that's been important. And in terms of um, LGBT, you know, rights for the queer community, uh, there has been a real societal shift that says, you know, the the rights of, of queer individuals, especially now, for instance, non-binary and trans individuals, hasn't been enshrined in law enough, and we need to work on that. And you know, it wasn't that long ago, I think in the 1980s, when there was a, a gay rights activist who was harassed so much and had to deal with so much homophobia that he left Iceland and he moved to mm-hmm. Denmark, which where you could live a little bit more anonymously. So it hasn't been that long 
since there was a lot more homophobia within this society. And I think the positive thing there is that it shows how it can change. So Iceland, you know, slowly but surely, we've been introducing uh, legislation that levels the playing field and that enshrines people's rights in law more and more. And society is just more tolerant of those things. And, and, um, and, and yes, has a positive feeling towards the uh, the LGBTQI plus community. So, uh, you and know, I, I think, mm-hmm. and I think you uh, you make the point that Iceland is the first country to have an openly gay head of government. Is that That's correct? Am I, yes. am I getting that right? That's right. Yeah, our Prime Minister Johanna Sigurdardóttir, who became Prime Minister in two thousand and nine, uh, is married to her partner, a writer, and. Um, I remember one thing that I kind of liked that I remember about it was I had, she was a politician obviously before she became prime minister and I had heard of her, knew she was a politician and it made international headlines when she became prime minister as the world's first openly gay head of government. And I had Mm -hmm. no idea that she was gay because that just wasn't something that people talked about because it's not an issue at all here. So I, I remember people thought she used to be a flight attendant was one of her first jobs. And I think that was more in the news, that the prime minister was a former flight attendant rather than that the prime minister was gay. Oh, that's really interesting. Very interesting. And she's a tough cookie, isn't she? Absolutely. Uh-huh. She's a spracky, as we would say. A spracky, yeah, exactly. And so many other spracky, um, mm-hmm. sprakar so yes. is the plural, um, throughout. And I, I'm, I was particularly um, impressed, I think, with the chapter where you look at some of the people who deal with Iceland's um, sort of challenging outdoor professions of fishing mm-hmm. and farming have traditionally been for men. Um, but you introduced us to a number of women like Halidora Unner's daughter, mm-hmm. who's, who are carving themselves out a wonderful kind of um, place and role within mm-hmm. these. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like to visit these women and, and mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how they, um, how they, how they rise to these challenges. Mm-hmm. I, I, this is one of my favorite chapters to write because I really wanted a chapter that talked that could introduce the reader as well to Iceland's nature and mm-hmm. and the vital importance that it's played really on the development of the Icelandic psyche, if you will. And fisheries and agricultural still very important pillars of the community and and especially fisheries for the economy and and very important parts of the society. I think more so than it perhaps they are in in other countries. And so I wanted to profile these. And the interesting thing, I think, about these two women, I profile a farmer and, and a sea captain, is, of course, they're not doing this to fight for gender equality or to be the first one. It was just their dream to be a, a mm-hmm. sea captain and a farmer. And and the, the, the message and the takeaway that I have really in that chapter is how important it is to follow your dreams, not to feel limited in any way by your gender, and but not necessarily to try to fight back and, and be mm-hmm. a trailblazer, but just to do what it is that you want to do. And both of those women talk about having had to prove themselves in a very masculine environment, um, but also talk about the developments and how that has changed for them since they've begun, that there's a lot, there's a lot less acceptance of, of uh, casual misogyny and, and humor and discussion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the third person that I profile in that chapter is a woman who manages a chapter of the local search and rescue crew, which is all voluntary run and, and a very important part of the community here as well. And I remember when I went to meet her, I thought at first, well, she might tell me a story about sexism here because the search and rescue crew is uh, more dominated by men. It's a very outdoor, uh, physically intensive pursuit 
And, and I thought that she might tell me stories about people saying, well, you know, this isn't for weak women to do, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, I was pleased to see that she said it was the most gender blind organization she'd taken part in because, and maybe that's uh, logical because the physical uh, tests that one has to pass to be able to join the search and rescue queue are so hard that I think mm-hmm. once you've passed those tests, nobody really cares what your gender is. So I was very pleased to see that as well, that this was something that she wanted to do. Um, it, it's a wonderful gift to the community and, and a wonderful test test of one's mettle uh, wow. oneself. Yeah. So it, it has to be incredibly hard because you're dealing with both a sort of extreme cold and violent water and mm-hmm. volcanoes and yeah all, all kinds of all kinds of all challenges kinds of things and just be Very ready to impressive. like drop thing you know you get an sms like leave now and and it's an unpaid position it's unpaid exactly Good and okay. you know employers of the country are amazing as well if you think that if you work for, most of these people have jobs and they're teachers and accountants and lawyers and and whatever they do and um they can be at work and say i i got a call right now i gotta go i'm you know rescuing a person <laughs> Well, and we should we should note, which we haven't haven't done yet in our talk, that Iceland's population is relatively small. It's three hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. people, or slightly over. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what you know, the smallness of, of of that breeds a kind of intimacy, mm-hmm. does it? Uh, I mean, it seems it seems to me that 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 that's everybody has to kind of step up to the plate and help each other out yes. in that situation. Yeah. You definitely, you need to wear a lot of hats. I think that's, it's mm-hmm. definitely helped to facilitate gender equality because you know, if, if you look at the workforce, you can't afford to have a lot of your population being at home, not working in a job because mm-hmm. society wouldn't function that way. Um, it's also easier really to, to feel like you're making a contribution as an individual that you're having an impact on change and mm-hmm. to see the results of those change and measure them quickly enough uh, and, and, and to be a role model, I think mm-hmm. it helps also create, you know, more of a, an open-minded nature. I know that the Ukla Stefania, who's the trans activist that I interview in my book, they said, you know, in Iceland, the issue is that every, most cis people know a trans person. And therefore, mm. it, 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 it's sort of the fear of the unknown in some senses that breeds prejudice. So that all helps. Uh, conversely, the challenge of the country's size, of course, is for immigrants, for example, that there that you can develop these sort of cliques of, you know, people that you are, are from the same community as you are or went to school with you. And, and immigrants don't necessarily have those same networks or those same frames of reference. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, like everything, you kind of have to work a little bit harder to to break in. And you identify yourself at the beginning of the book and throughout the book very strongly as an immigrant to Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, and you I, I sort of are focused on other immigrants. What's that experience been like? I mean, it's obviously the only experience that I have in Iceland, but I think it's mm-hmm. important. You know, I think about it a lot because uh, also because I'm serving as first lady here. And even though there have been other foreign born first ladies in Iceland, I think it's very important from the point of view of being a role model as well, for example, that I have learned Icelandic uh, as an adult. So I speak mm-hmm. it imperfectly and I speak it with an accent, although I speak it well. And I think that's very important for people in Iceland to hear that I still have something to say, even though I am saying it imperfectly. And um, Iceland is an increasingly diverse and multicultural society. 
we now have more people of foreign origin here than there are senior citizens. Oh, and, that's and, an interesting statistic. Yeah, I love that statistic. That's very interesting. <laughs> and and so, that wasn't always the case, was it? No, it's changed rapidly in, yeah. in the last 20 years. And, and that rapid change has also, you know, made a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, I, you know, I'm always careful. I didn't want to paint all immigrants with the same brush because of course, you know, we're all different and we have different uh, experiences and, and challenges and strengths and weaknesses like everyone else. But the point, the larger point of that when it comes to gender equality is to also say that we can't, gender equality isn't for some exclusive, um, privileged, group of Nordic white women. It is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And we cannot achieve that equality if we don't include everybody in the d- dialogue and if we leave groups behind. Mm-hmm. And one of those large groups in Iceland are immigrants that we need to just be really cognizant that that they also need to be included in the dialogue and the debate. Well, and one thing that brings the society together, and I, I love the way you write about this, um, being such a small nation, when Iceland gets on the map, as it were, you know, wins an Academy Award or a mm-hmm. Nobel Prize, um, the whole nation celebrates. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that the per capita, you know, amount of, of Nobel Prizes or Oscars goes goes shooting yeah. up. Um, and you, you kind of um, wrap that around the ways in which sports and culture have played their part in helping Iceland see women uh, Mm -hmm. on an equal footing to men. And Mm -hmm. I remember very well when um, Iceland was doing very well in the World Cup Mm -hmm. um, in 2018, I think. Um, And it was just so wonderful to see the way the enthusiasm Mm -hmm. of the, um, of the, fans and mm-hmm. i think you were among those fans um in I moscow was. it's a and, per- perk of um, the job of being the first lady yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk to us a little bit about um the sports and culture and other artistic mm-hmm. endeavors how how does that um help the cause i mean i think these things are so important that you know legislation only takes you so far and role models only takes it's it's really that we have to be seeing and experiencing the world with these gender equality lenses and that's why i have a chapter on arts and culture and sport um, what I almost call sort of the extracurricular activities for many people, because it's the way that our society is being reflected back to us. So if we do not see women represented in media enough or not in, in, or in a sort of stereotypical or narrow-minded way, if we are not supporting our female athletes as well as we're supporting our male athletes, then we're limiting our ability to achieve gender equality. And in Iceland, for instance, I talked to two writers and there's an area where we are working better to achieve gender equality. For instance, books uh, written by women sell as well as books written by men, which is not always the case. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the field of sports, for example, there's a huge chasm, as there is everywhere, between uh, men and women in sport. And yet in Iceland, we're also working quite well to close the chasm by, for example, the fact that uh, the national teams, men's and women's national teams, earn the same bonuses. And, mm. But I think as consumers of sport and culture, you know, art and literature, we really just need to be cognizant of the diversity of, of what we're consuming and whether the material that's being presented is really reflecting the reality of our society today. And do you, do you think that's in a good place right now? I think it's, I think we, I think we always need to be vigilant. I think mm-hmm. if we don't remember, um, it's not going to happen. And I know it's something I've always tried to be aware of. But I, for example, used to edit Icelandair's in-flight magazine. And I used to think, all right, I would like to make sure that my interview subjects in each issue, that I have good gender balance in my interview subjects. And if I didn't consciously look at the content of each issue and count the number of interview subjects, mm-hmm. then it wasn't there. 
um, even though I like to think in my mind that I have a diverse representation, unless I really sat down and did the numbers, it didn't always mm. happen. Um, oh, so I just think me. it's something we need to remain vigilant about. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Um, and you, you actually um, don't sugarcoat. Um, some of the some of the problems that still exist. Um, you say that Iceland still suffers from the Nordic paradise, paradox. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to us what that is and yeah. and how it, it manifests itself in Iceland? So the Nordic paradox is a theory about gender based violence and mm. about why it is that the Nordic countries overall have sometimes higher reporting rates of gender based violence. And that's called a paradox because people think of the Nordics as leading in the fight for gender equality, and then they say, well, why are there so many cases of gender based violence? And I think the theory is probably that it's not necessarily that there are actually more cases in real terms, but there is more reporting of it, whether that's because there's less stigma attached to speaking out and coming forward, whether it's a a broader legal definition of what constitutes gender-based violence, whether there's more trust in the police. Um, so this is something that we're looking at, but you know, one case of gender-based violence is one case too many. So Mm. we we need to be extra vigilant about this as well. And, you know, I can give a couple of examples in Iceland. So now in Iceland, there was a law passed last year that made so-called revenge porn illegal. So people who've saved perhaps images from a previous relationship and share them on social media, that's illegal now. Uh, mm-hmm. If people have brought forward case accusations or, or laid charges in cases of gender-based violence, there is a pilot program at Reykjavik University of a virtual reality where you, where uh, people can who are going to be called to the stand can go and participate in a sort of virtual reality courtroom setting so that it mm. prepares them for the actual real-life experience of everything. Um, mm-hmm. But there's absolutely, there's still a degree of stigma surrounding people who uh, who do this. And it's very difficult a very small minority of cases actually go through the process of trial and result in, in um, convictions. So uh-huh. it's something that needs to be looked at. And, and there's a group of women right now who are bringing the state of Iceland to the European Court of Human Rights and suing them for not having examined the cases of gender-based violence well enough. So that's something mm. that was just announced when I was finishing the book, and it'll be really interesting to see how, how that develops. That's one to keep an eye on for sure. In the book, you talk, you you make the point that Iceland has a very open attitude towards sexuality, mm-hmm. um, and that um, people become sexually active at a slightly more early age, and that's that's accepted mainstream. How does that balance with this this notion, mm-hmm. or do you think the two are not connected at all? Well, I think it means, you know, it's very good for equality overall, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't create double standards between men and women. So women Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily expected to conform to some kind of unrealistic standard of purity, for lack of a better term. Um, Mm -hmm. And it reduces stigma, for instance, for single mothers, there really is no stigma for uh, towards single mothers here. But you know, in in having this more open environment where, uh, where casual hookups for to to put it uh, colloquially are are generally acceptable of course that raises the importance of really discussing with everybody issues of consent and informed mm-hmm. consent and and making sure that especially men understand the idea that consent is something that can can be withdrawn at any point in time and it needs to be looked at in the context of 
you know, drinking culture and how much alcohol mm. is being consumed. And, you know, I also mentioned afterwards that Reykjavik is the highest rate of chlamydia per capita in mm. Europe. So, <laughs> you know, there are pluses and minuses, but I think right. uh, acknowledging that women on a similar level to men when it, or the same level to men when it comes to sexuality is an important step in, in the process of gender equality. Definitely, definitely. And I, I'd like to finish just by asking, I mean, you assumed a very public role when your husband became president. Um, but you've been very open about your challenges. Um, particularly, you penned a wonderful um, opinion piece in the New York Times in 2019. Um, with a slightly um, cringe, you were responding to Donald <laughs> Tusk's video on Instagram of the lighter side of the force. And, and you, I thought you did a great job of exploring the oddities of having this slightly antiquated job, but one that is still very important. And mm -hmm. I think Bravo you for writing this book um, and, and using that platform to bring these important issues um, to, to light. But talk to us a little bit about what it's been like to, mm -hmm. to become First Lady mm -hmm. and what have been some of the challenges mm -hmm. and the rewards? Well, I mean, and, and I always have to emphasize first, it is such a, an honor and a privilege and I really enjoy it. So when I criticize different dimensions or perceptions, I'm not at all complaining. I'm just highlighting... Um, some of the maybe outdated attitudes towards it uh, for the modern era. So mm -hmm. uh, exactly. The, when I became first lady, which as I mentioned at the beginning happened in a, quite rapidly <laughs> uh, by nature, I'm really a rule follower. You know, I want to, I want someone to say, you are allowed to do this. You are not allowed to do that. And there is no handbook for how to be first lady because there is no official role for how to be first lady. And I found that very intimidating at the beginning because I really want to serve with dignity and with honor, and I didn't want to mess things up or, or cause an embarrassment to the, the institution, the office of the president. Um, and gender equality has always been important to me. It's always been important to me to speak out and to use my voice. And I suppose as I got more used to the role, I thought I, I should stop worrying about the irony of the fact that I have this platform to talk about gender equality because of something my husband achieved. And just use the platform. I mean, all, fate hands us all different hands and we all have different reasons for doing things. And, and really what I should be focusing on is how I'm going to use this unique opportunity that I have. And mm -hmm. one of those aspects was writing this piece in the New York Times, as you mentioned, just again to kind of draw attention to some of the uh, gentle assumptions that are made about female spouses of male head of states. And I said often sometimes in imagery that it's almost portraying them as that post was, I thought, as sort of the, the, the muses to their husband's genius as if they weren't individuals on their own. And mm -hmm. then I wrote this line, you know, I'm not my husband's handbag to be grabbed <laughs> as he runs out the door and displayed silently by his side at public appearances. Um, but, but, you know, like everybody else, I, I wrote this piece and I, as I was writing it, I was thinking, am I allowed to do this? Is a first lady allowed mm. to write an op-ed for the New York Times? I don't know. And I, I didn't tell anybody because I kind of didn't want to be talked out of it. Um, mm. And the night before it was published, uh, you know, I woke up really early and I kept thinking, why did I do this? What, I'm just bringing on trouble for myself. And people are just going to complain about this. And nobody asked me to do this. So why am I creating all this hassle? But in fact, I had wonderful response from it, both within Iceland and elsewhere, because as it turns out, um, a great, although not many people are married to a head of state, a great number of people, and especially women, are maybe married to people who are better known than they are themselves, especially in mm. a professional context. Mm -hmm. And it does affect one's identity in some way, even if, even if, for example, you know, I'm incredibly proud to be married to my husband. Um, 
so I, I think that it kind of, it touched a nerve and it, it was important for the dialogue to talk about the, the fact that, that these people aren't the wives, uh, that mm. we are all individuals with our own strengths and weaknesses, and that there also shouldn't be expectations that we have to uh, be around our husbands all of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think uh, for no other reason, um, the per capita members of the Icelandic community who got opinion pieces published in the New York Times soared. Um, <laughs> that's when true. You, when you Thank you. That's this. an excellent point. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> has it has it gotten easier over the years? You, you're, you've been at this yeah. now for six years. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It yeah. goes fast, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Has it gotten easier? Yeah. It's. I am. Um, I'm I probably still not very good with the whole clothes thing, <laughs> but I try to use that in a, in a good sense. I, I don't have mm-hmm. a very good fashion instinct. Not, again, that women should have a fashion instinct, but it's this balance. Of course, that's discussed a lot, uh, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, and I'm certainly much better at doing off-the-cuff speeches in Icelandic. I think mm-hmm. when I first started, uh, I could always do speeches in Icelandic, but I tended to read them more and now I'm much better at doing them off the cuff. So like everything was, else improves with time. I was very inspired by what you said um, in the book at the end that, that you, you have come to understand that it's important for you to say something, even if you're saying it with an accent, mm-hmm. um, because I always feel very, um, very shy about speaking in Russian, which mm-hmm. is my husband's language. And mm-hmm. um, certainly I would, I would feel very awkward doing it in public. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've you've embraced that and made it your own. I've made many mistakes too, and most uh-huh. of them I never say in public now. <laughs> but, <Okay. laughs> so you've got to get through the mistakes and know that life continues despite uh-huh. you know egregious errors. Indeed. Well, what's what's on the horizon for you, Eliza Reed? What's next? Mm-hmm. Well, immediate. Well, right now I'm promoting the book, which is okay, really exciting and wonderful, and I'm really enjoying, even though much of it is virtual. And at the end of April is the Iceland Writers Retreat, which we are really excited uh, are returning to an in-person event after having been uh, digital last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we'll just see. I feel that that's I feel that that's plenty on my plate right now. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and we'll just see. But I've I've loved this process of of writing a book. And um, so you know, I never had a specific dream to write a book, uh, but I had this idea, and I thought it would work. And so. I, I kind of hope that I'll have another idea at some point. We'll see well, what happens. I, 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 this is a, a wonderful achievement, and it's really showcased one of the many fabulous aspects of your adopted country, Iceland. Um, so I hope if you do write another one, you'll come back uh, and chat with us about it on the New Books Network. Of course, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Eliza, and good luck promoting the book. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today has been Eliza Reed, author of Secrets of the Sprocher, uh, which is available wherever great books are sold. Uh, I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyev, and thank you so much for listening today. And I will be back soon to discuss another new book with its author. Thanks for listening. <laughs>